listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. Every Thursday, uh, every last Thursday of the month for two years, uh, a group of people that had been meeting in our home weekly uh, for Bible study and to eat dinners together would go to the CRC for dinner. The CRC where we lived was the Community Resource Center. Uh, It was a place where people that that didn't have a lot in their day-to-day lives would go for resourcing. And every last Thursday of the month, we'd go there to eat. Uh, Because I had met Miss Beth and fallen in love with her vision for ministry. At the Community Resource Center, they might have served anyone from someone living in a homeless camp to to someone who was getting off the bus at the end of the day after working 8 to 5 that that just needed a little extra help subsidizing the cost of meals throughout the week. Uh, Miss Beth asked our little group of 10 to 15 people if we would be a part of helping serve those dinners. So we said, yeah, sure, we're already meeting. We might as well capitalize on that opportunity to go there. What was special about Miss Beth is that you might have heard the saying before, if you give a man a fish, you'll feed him for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, you can feed him for a lifetime. Uh, I've worked in outreach ministries for the previous 10 years before I became a pastor at King's Community. And, and I've, I've met so many social workers, so many people that are trying to help uh, that have created a, a false dichotomy between giving a man a fish and teaching people to fish and saying it's one or the other. Miss Beth thought we needed both. Uh, so in her work, she was devoted to feeding people who would have trouble hearing how to better their lives over the sound of a growling stomach. So she would feed them on the way to teaching them how they might be able to take part in bettering their life. So every last Thursday of the month, our group would, would put together a meal plan, we'd cook it, we'd show up, and we would serve dinner, and then we'd grab plates and go eat with people. And that was normal for us. Uh, but I'll never forget the very first time we went and did that. After everyone who was there, a few dozen people, went through line, everyone in our group just grabbed a plate, went through line, and then just spread out and ate with other people. Uh, that was normal to us, maybe because we had some college students in the group and they were like, there's a free meal here, we're going to eat. But what was beautiful about it is the meal was a great equalizer. If you walked into that place, you would look out and not know the differences between social status. You would not know the differences between people wrestling through mental health issues or, or living their everyday lives, working hard, trying to invest in a family. Meals were a great equalizer. And Ms. Beth knew that meals were a part of helping people experience wholeness and flourishing. Food matters. Meals matter. Few acts are a better reflection of love and acceptance than a shared meal because food connects us. It has the power to turn strangers into friends. And this is actually one of the main themes in the Bible and one of the main themes Jesus lived out in his everyday life. In fact, one commentator on the Bible, when he's looking at Luke's gospel account, says, when you watch Jesus' ministry, he's always coming from or going to a meal. He's just always eating, even to the extent that in Luke chapter 7, 
the Pharisees, these, these experts in the law who don't know what to make of Jesus, say he must be a glutton and a drunk because he's always at meals with people. They didn't like that Jesus was eating with people who didn't deserve to be eaten with. They thought he was too joyful. Everywhere Jesus went, he offered joy and blessings even to people who didn't seem to deserve it. Because when you eat with people, you're naturally showing them a form of love and acceptance. It made the experts in the law really uncomfortable. But I would say, like Jesus, if we're one of Christ's followers, you're here to eat not alone, not just in a personal relationship with God, but with other people. You are here to eat so that others may be served and maybe even saved. In Luke chapter 14, it tells the story of Jesus at a meal. It's important for us to see what happens at this epic moment. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to to find Luke chapter 14. It's in the New Testament about three-quarters of the way through your Bible. Here's the story. One Sabbath, when Jesus went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So Jesus comes into this environment, this mealtime, this banquet that he's invited to, and, and he asks this question about one of the people that's there, this sick man. And he asks, is it it lawful for him to be healed today or not? Jesus isn't just making small talk. He's actually creating a polarizing conversation. See, he's invited to the house of a leading Pharisee. And in today's world, that would be like the top lawyer in the community. Pharisees were the best at being the best. In mealtimes in this era were times when you would surround yourself with people like you to reinforce the social status that you had in society. You wouldn't just eat with anyone. And these guys invited Jesus to the meal table because he was becoming popular and powerful. He was teaching and healing everywhere he went, and large crowds were following him. The Pharisees wanted to know whether it was advantageous for them to hang out with Jesus or whether they needed to put an end to what he was doing. So they invited a sick man to dinner on the Sabbath day to test Jesus. The Sabbath was a holy day. There were lots of rules about the Sabbath, and one of them was no working was allowed. Rules are important, but rules were meant to teach people how to live, how to honor God, how to live for God. But somewhere along the way, people started to worship following the rules instead of worshiping God and allowing the rules to teach us to love what God loves. It became about who the best rule followers were rather than how the rules could help us learn to love what God loves. The Pharisees cared about being righteous, which was actually a really good thing because righteous means to be right with God. So the Pharisees wanted something that people should have craved, but they were misguided in their approach to what would make them righteous. The Pharisees' mistake was they thought that following the rules makes us righteous. But that's not the case. One way to understand this thing that separates us from God called sin is doing bad things. A lot of us tend to think of sin as doing bad things. But when we read the story of the Bible, we realize that's only half of the understanding of what sin is. 
Sin is doing bad things that makes us impure and defiled and unrighteous. However, there's another dimension of sin that's not just behavior-oriented. It's a condition that we're born into. Sin is a condition that's rooted in the motivation of our hearts. The Pharisees were going about addressing their sin issue by doing all the right behavior, but they were forgetting the condition of sin that was making their hearts unrighteous, and therefore they were still estranged from God. Jesus is addressing this. He understands the truth that only God can make people righteous, clean, and pure. We're dirty because of us, which means we can only be made clean by someone else. And Jesus is demonstrating and declaring the message that righteousness can come from God alone by something called grace. Biblical grace is a gift that's undeserved. We can't earn our way into God's grace. If you've never thought of grace according to the Bible, uh, an easy way to remember it is the acronym GRACE, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. When you and I think about receiving grace, it's a free gift to us. But it's not a cheap gift. Someone had to pay for it. The gift of grace that we're afforded by God came at the expense of Christ on a bloody cross so that we could become the righteousness that Jesus actually lived out. One can only be made righteous by Jesus. It's a gift from God, not something that we can earn. If following rules can make you righteous and you're the one making up the rules, you don't have a need for God. So these Pharisees, these experts in the law, were known for being the best God followers, but they were really treating themselves as if they were God because they're making up the rules for living. While they wouldn't say that they thought they were living like God, just like most of us don't think we live like we're trying to be God, we all struggle with the idea that we would do a better job of being God than God. I know this because anytime you think the world would be a better place if everyone just bent to your preferences, that is assuming and asserting that you would do a good job at being God and the world could revolve around you. Random example, like yesterday, when my wife was going to vacuum a common area where everyone in our family has shared crumbs and spilled and had dirty feet there. And while she's graciously loving our family by cleaning up something that we've all done wrong, instead of thanking her for the grace that she's showing us, I grabbed the cord of the vacuum and said, who did this? It was tangled up in knots in the most unrighteous way possible. And, and I was going to be the one to make sure everyone knew that this was not the way to fold the vacuum cord. She was like, why does it bother you so much? Did you read somewhere that this is gonna like destroy our vacuum? No. I just don't like it. And I want you to change to be like me. We do that in our day-to-day -day lives. Now I make light of it, to show you how meaningless of an example there can be. But how many times in your day-to-day -day life do you get angry because someone doesn't do something like you? Not because it's unrighteous, but because it's not your preference. We assume that we would do a better job at being God than God. In the middle of this banquet, 
Jesus is illuminating the flaws of the Pharisees. And it looks like the host had planted a sick person at the dinner table to test Jesus. Would Jesus heal this man that was sick and break their man-made laws? Jesus knows they didn't invite him with pure motives. When you read that line, they were watching him closely. They were testing him to see what he would do. Have you ever been in a classroom where the teacher asks you a question and you feel like you know the answer, but it kind of feels like a trap at the same time? Yeah. Uh, When I was in the eighth grade, it was at the end of a class day and I had my feet up on the table uh, as an eighth grader would. And the teacher came over to me and she asked me a question. She said, Mr. DeGarmo, do you put your feet on the furniture at home? And even though I knew what she wanted me to say and do, I was like, well, yeah, I actually do. And it did not go well for me that day. (laughs) The Pharisees are a little bit more savvy in this situation. See, they ask Jesus, is it? Or Jesus asked them, is it appropriate to heal someone on the Sabbath? And they think they know the right answer. But they're all paralyzed with fear because they know how powerful this man is. They know how much authority he has. So they sit there in silence. Jesus did what's right and heals the man, knowing that they didn't understand the purpose of the rules to learn to love what God loves. In verse 4, it picks up, they kept silent. Jesus took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them he said, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately put him out on the Sabbath day? They could not find an answer to these things. Jesus knows that if they flip the scenario on its head and the opportunity to bless wasn't someone else but themselves, they'd do it in a heartbeat. If it was their child or if it was one of their animals that was stuck, they would work to get it out of being stuck if it meant blessing them. Not because they love their kids and because they're animal lovers, but because that's where the family's wealth was coming from. So if it meant blessing themselves, they would undoubtedly work on a Sabbath day. But when it came to blessing someone else, they would impose rules. And Jesus speaks to them in a parable when he exposes the state of their hearts. What's a parable? A parable is a story to give clusters of meaning, to teach clusters of information. Teachers would use parables, these insightful stories to help teach people lots about life and living. Jesus was a master at using parables. This is what he said. He told a parable to those who were invited to this banquet when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you might have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come to you and say, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and recline in the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will be the honored one in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In the midst of this meal, Jesus tells them a parable about how to act in a meal. And he's talking to them about the posture of their hearts, their attitude towards other people. Have you ever been in a group that's been asked to 
getting a single file line based on age or alphabetical order. And you start to look around the room and you're sizing people up, trying to figure out where you fit into the equation. And then maybe you start asking people a few questions to see where you should get in line. Well, every meal that happened, every great banquet that happened with the Pharisees, they would line themselves up based on who was worth the most, who was the most righteous. It sounds gross when you think about it that way, but it was all about status, even for these religious elite. The closer you could sit to the host, the more righteous you would appear. Jesus is saying, stop doing that. Stop putting yourselves above other people. Stop ranking how good you are and how important you are in your own eyes. From a distance, it seems like no one would want to be friends with a Pharisee because they're so uppity, they're so arrogant. But again, I think we're not that much different. In fact, if you've ever referred to yourself as a Target person instead of a Walmart person, you've done the same thing as the Pharisees. If you've ever judged people based on the type of food they eat, how they plan to how they plan to educate their children, where they shop. If you have convictions about what neighborhood people live in and you make judgments based on people because of that, you're doing the same thing that the Pharisees were doing at meals. We create pecking orders with people above us and below us. We're the gross people in the story. Schools and food and where you shop aren't bad things unless... You're using them to judge other people and create a pecking order of how righteous you are, how good you are, and how righteous and not good others are. Jesus says, stop doing that. I think it's actually disgusting to him. And he says, there's going to be a day when you find out you thought too highly of yourself and it's going to be humiliating. In this culture, in ancient Israel, It was good to avoid shame. Shame was the worst thing that you could bear. You didn't want to become a meme in ancient Israel. In our culture, we'll take shame if it means 15 minutes of fame, but not them. Shame would have been associated with your identity and your family, and everyone who was associated with you would wear that shame too. So shame always resulted in loneliness. And to be lonely in a communal culture is tremendously isolating. It would be terrifying because all of your life is dependent on other people. So you try to avoid shame at all costs. Remember, this is a parable. Jesus is teaching them about God's economy. He's teaching them the system of how life and relationships were created to work, the way God designed life and living. And he's pointing out that you think you're making yourself righteous and you think you're better than other people, but there's going to be a day when God comes to the table and says, you don't belong in this seat. When he's talking about that, he's talking about eternity in heaven and hell. Heaven is the perfect presence of God with endless joy and harmony with all of God's people. Or the alternative is separated from God in a joyless, shameful, and lonely hell. And do you see how loving and gracious Jesus is to warn these people about their hearts being pointed in the wrong direction? They're motivated by self-righteousness instead of God's grace. Jesus is saying, think of yourself humbly. Choose the worst seat and let the host tell you, no, I invited you to this party. I want you to sit with me. 
The Pharisees are guilty of thinking so low of God. The Pharisees are thinking so lowly about how much space is at God's table. The Pharisees are thinking so highly about their right, righteous behavior. And they're minimizing how big God is. The truth that the Bible tells us is that there will be people from every nation, tribe, and language group throughout all the world, throughout all of human history that have room at God's table. God's table is so much bigger than we can comprehend. And all of us that are seated there are going to be seated there by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not like my son's teams that I've coached where every once in a while I'll circle the kids up and tell them to take a knee. And as soon as I take a knee, these eight, five, and six-year-olds will come and, and try to elbow their way into right next to where I'm sitting. And it never works out because there are only two sides of me that one child gets to sit on each. It's funny because the kids are wrestling each other to sit next to me, but there's only two spots. Somehow, in some magnificent way, God is so different. And when he invites someone to sit at his table, he's inviting them to sit with him. There is space at God's table right next to God for us. And until we begin to believe that, we're going to continue creating pecking orders with where people belong in God's economy, ruling some people out. God is so much different than us. He invites us to the table. We need to recognize that we don't belong there and celebrate that he still invited us. How do you feel knowing that, how do you feel knowing that you've been invited into the presence of God? Isn't that a sweet gift? You have been invited into the presence of God. Now, how do you make others feel in your presence? How do people feel in your presence in everyday life, in your neighborhood and at work? Would someone who doesn't look, sound, act, and even smell like you feel safe in your presence? Or would they feel unworthy next to you? What do you think Jesus looked and smelled like? Do you think he'd shop at Target or Walmart? It's a rhetorical question. Jesus, who in the first years of life was a child refugee in Egypt because his life was at risk in his home country. Jesus, who grew up with parents stigmatized for being promiscuous because his mother was pregnant before she was married. Jesus who undoubtedly smelled of sweat when he did the work of a stonemason and a carpenter in the Middle East before he took on the work of full-time ministry. Jesus, who was homeless, always staying with other people through his years devoted to teaching and healing. Jesus, who was a friend of reviled tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. The perfect picture of righteousness is a lower-class Middle Eastern brown man whose closest friends were outcasts. Yet everywhere he went, he brought love and life, and oftentimes it was around a meal. Let's make sure we're calibrating our picture of what Jesus is. We'll never be effective in ministry if we see people first by our differences instead of by our common need for grace. Jesus taught the people who were really good at looking good. When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. 
because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus taught them to go forward loving people indiscriminately, not just people who look like them. Jesus taught them to love people generously. Don't just love people who can repay you with something. Love people like God loves. Invite people into your life who need grace. He says, do that and you will be blessed. You will be repaid by God at the resurrection of the righteous. If you were here a couple of weeks ago when we started this series, you are here. We talked about the idea that you are here to bless. And in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, we see God creating a people and he says, you will be a blessing to the world and I am the one who's responsible for blessing you. Jesus is repeating the same sentiment that God told Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. You are here to bless. And a man at the table speaks up. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Isn't that good news? I love that statement. He's talking about salvation and eternity, but at the same time, we learn blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In heaven, you're not going to have to count carbs or ask if there's gluten in things. That's part of the celebration that we have. Amen? Amen. The people at the table knew that the coming of the kingdom was marked by an endless feast. And at the center of the feast was what they called the bread of life. Throughout the Bible, there are a number of times when God provided bread to sustain his wandering and needy people. Bread was the essential food for ancient Israelites. Bread was the number one metaphor for life and nourishment. Bread was a form of social bond which related acceptance of one another. The Passover meal, the big celebration in all of the Old Testament was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread because of the time that God was in such a hurry to save his people that they weren't even going to let the bread rise. God was going to provide safety and salvation from 400 years of slavery. And they were going to have to take their bread, cook it quickly, and run. And they celebrated that every year because God provided bread for them to be able to live and escape the bondage and torment of slavery. Throughout the Old Testament, God provided bread for helpless people and groups to let them know that he was present and taking care of them. And in Luke's gospel, we see earlier in Jesus' ministry, he provided fish and bread miraculously for crowds of thousands so that they would know the presence of God was with them. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to say, give us today our daily bread. When people in Israel talked about bread, they were talking about life and especially life with God. They knew that. And Jesus came preaching, I am the bread of life that you need. I am the only substance that will sustain and satisfy all who take me in. And he continues with another parable. Then he told them, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, 
I just got married, and therefore I'm unable to come. The last one seems like he's got a real legitimate excuse, right, fellas? Yeah. It seems like the most religious people are the ones to fit in at God's table, but it's the religious people that are the ones rejecting the invitation of Jesus. Jesus is telling this parable to people that are rejecting him, that are refusing his grace. And as he tells this parable, he gives different excuses. They seem to have some legitimacy to them. I bought a field and I should go see it. Makes sense. Unless you understand Jewish customs. No Jewish man in ancient Israel would have bought a field without seeing every square inch of that field and writing up in the contract what, what existed in that field and what belonged to them. So the idea that a man would have bought a field without looking at it is like someone calling you up and saying, I want you to buy this house. I'm not going to tell you anything about it or the neighborhood that it's in. And you buying it. It's absurd. And no one would have believed that excuse. The second excuse, I've bought oxen and I'm going to try them out. That would be on par with you driving home from work and calling your spouse saying, I won't be home for dinner because I bought five cars. Seem like a good deal. Haven't looked at them yet. I'm going to go stop and look at them before I come home. It's absurd. This excuse would have been crazy to people that you would buy oxen your livelihood without looking at them first. Then we come to the last one, the legitimate one, right? I just got married. Probably shouldn't come. This never would have happened in that society. When someone great is putting on a banquet, it means they're a big deal. And they would give you a lot of notice to clear your calendar. No one in their right mind would have scheduled a wedding feast at the same time as this great banquet. It's another empty excuse. Don't we do the same things, making up excuses to not spend time with God? I'm busy. I've got work. I've got other things to do. I've got other relationships that I need to prioritize. When will it occur to us that God doesn't force us to be with him? Because that isn't love. He invites us to be with him. And friends, I tell you, if you want the gifts of God without the presence of God, you've missed the grace of God. If you want the gifts of God without the presence of God, you have missed the grace of God. The grace of God that leads us to salvation. People who are really good at being good don't see the need for God. You might just believe you're better off without him. After all, you're not Hitler. You're not Charles Manson. You deserve to be in heaven. Don't we find some of the, the, the greasiest scumbag people in society to make us feel like we deserve to be in the presence of God? I believe we actually go throughout life with a radar thinking about how good we are compared to other people. And we muster up these people throughout history that make us feel good about ourselves. At least we're not them. But we're missing the point. God has called us to righteousness, not just to be better than dictators and serial killers. That is a really low bar, church. That shouldn't be our goal. The man in the parable invited good people with good jobs and good money and good relationships. But they thought they were all doing just good enough. They all had excuses and didn't want to join the party. Listen to this, church. In this parable, judgment is described as hospitality refused. Judgment is described as hospitality refused. Jesus is not sending people 
to hell. He's giving them exactly what they want. He's allowing them to not show up at the banquet feast that he's invited them into so graciously and generously and lovingly because it's exactly what they need. And the lesson isn't over. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy the banquet. Jesus' ministry is a great reversal. It's like he said it would be earlier in Luke chapter 13 when he described the last would become first and the first would become last. Jesus changes everything. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame got a place at the great banquet. That would have been crazy talk at a table of religious leaders because they thought people that were going through physical trials were just demonstrating a reflection of their spiritual hearts. And because they were healthy, they thought they were good. And because they were wealthy, they thought they were fine. So for the, the great man hosting the banquet to invite the least of these in would have shocked those in the presence of Jesus. Tim, Tim Chester explains in his book, A Meal with Jesus, that we need to understand that we are the spiritually poor with nothing to offer for our salvation. We are the spiritually crippled, made powerless by sin. We are the spiritually blind, unable to see the truth about Jesus. We are the spiritually lame, unable to come to God on our own. And our attitude towards outcasts should be shaped by God's grace towards us. How do other people feel in your presence? I love what Jesus says in verse 22 and 23. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. Heaven is going to look like a motley crew. Heaven is going to look like the CRC the Community Resource Center, where people from every walk in life, every race and ethnicity and nationality and social status will be present at the dinner table of the king. We should live in such a way that reflects we believe that. Our attitude towards outcasts should be shaped by God's grace towards us. If you feel like the outcast in life, if you don't know where you belong, there is room at Jesus' table for you. Consider this your invitation. All you have to do is admit that you need the grace he's provided and believe that Jesus paid your admission on the cross. That's how we're invited to the table of God. And church, if you're already at the table of God, I tell you, go, run, find people and invite them into your life because God wants his house filled. So many of us treat our Christian faith like it's a cozy environment for us to be comfortable and protect ourselves from outsiders. When God has invited us to his adventurous mission to bring people that don't look like they belong into his presence 
because he did that for you and for me. Does your life reflect that? Use your meal times and your dinner tables to join God's mission. The meal table is an extremely ordinary place, and yet ordinary places are where God tends to do the most extraordinary work. Hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing dishes is the ministry of facilitation. It's creating a space for us to join what God is already doing in the lives of others. It's in those times, in the most ordinary moments in life, that we get to learn the stories of our neighbors Learn the stories of the people that we work with. Learn the stories of the neighborhoods and workplaces that we live in. And start to connect those stories to the story of God. Too often we think of mission as extraordinary. Maybe it's because we find it awkward to talk about Jesus outside of church groups. Maybe we don't believe God moves through ordinary people like us. But most people live in the ordinary And most people will be reached by ordinary people. Ministry isn't about creating big programs and events. It's about joining God where he's already at work in the everyday stuff of life. God is moving all around us and he has invited us to take part in it. I wonder what sort of reputation Christians have in your neighborhood. I personally believe that we should be among the best partiers in our communities. We do not have to come up with with major reasons to party. They're all around us. We should be inviting people into our lives around personal occasions like birthdays and anniversaries and new jobs and housewarmings, sporting occasions like fantasy football, the Super Bowl, the World Cup, and kids' sporting teams, seasonal occasions, Labor Day, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year. Those are all opportunities to have people at your table to demonstrate their worth and their value in your eyes and ultimately in God's eyes. We can leverage cultural occasions like themed food nights. When we lived in Columbus, Ohio, we had a contingent of people in our church from Texas. Guess what they wanted to celebrate? Texas Independence Day. So we would gather a large group of people. Everyone's like, yeah, amen. We would gather lots of people to celebrate with them in order to hear from them because they matter to God and they need to matter to us too. I've got friends in Ohio right now that that love this going back to school season. So every Friday for the next two months, they have free donut Friday at bus stops and in their neighborhood where they've, they've actually passed out postcards inviting people to come in every Friday for two months to get free donuts just to let people know this is a safe space for you. This is a place for you to come in. You are welcome here. No strings attached. Those are the beginning of of ways that we can invite people into the everyday stuff of life with hopes that we might be able to introduce some people to the God that we worship. Parties are just a way to get started. The meal table is one of the most ordinary parts of our week. You are here to eat. When you open your table to people, provide food, ask questions, listen and get to know them better. By God's grace, there will be opportunities when you host to serve and eventually through acts of grace according to their needs. Bless them. And maybe some people will trust Christ through those relationships. Rosaria Butterfield, 
says in, in her outstanding book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, the Christian home is the place where we bring the church to the people. The purpose of radically ordinary hospitality is to take the hand of a stranger and put it in the hand of the Savior. That's our ultimate goal in eating with people. You are here to eat so that others may be served and maybe even saved. Let's pray for opportunities and run from this place looking to capitalize on them. Heavenly Father, when we look at the life of Jesus, it, it is so easy to see how unrighteous we are compared to his righteousness. God, you have been so loving and gracious to us in that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. God, help us to remember that, that sin isn't just doing bad things, but it's a condition that we live in. It's the motivation of our heart. And in spite of our sin, you have invited us to your banquet feast. You, in, you have invited us to be in your presence, to have eternal salvation secured with you. And you have invited us to run out from this place and invite others into that meal you've so graciously invited us into. God, when we read the parables that Jesus taught, will you give us courage? Will you give us clarity on where we might invite people to the meal table? And Lord, will you show us favor with opportunities to introduce people to you? Will you help us to serve people, trusting that, that through faithful service over and over and over again, that we'll learn the stories of others and some might be saved as we share your story with them. God, we pray that we would celebrate coming to your table and invite others in. Lead us with your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.